This is a show about my heroes and their legacies. The legacies they're making and the ones they're breaking. These are their stories of successes and failures. These are their journeys. This is their legacy. This is Successor. All right, my name is Evan Payne, and welcome to the Successor Podcast, a show dedicated to making and breaking legacies. I sit down with entrepreneurs, business leaders, foundation leaders, entertainers, and many more to learn how they are making impactful changes, not only in their industries, but in the world. This podcast is dedicated to those of you seeking purpose by plugging into some of my heroes who have found theirs, which brings us to my guest today, who is Charlene Maselli, who serves as the Director of National Initiatives at the Travis Mannion Foundation. Charlene's personal and professional achievements and contributions are, are certainly a, a tour de force, and they go on and on and on, But and I can't wait to dive into those, but she's also proudly a prominent Army spouse, mother of two amazing young adults, and someone I'm call, glad to call a friend. So thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Well, Charlene, I, I, I've got a ton of things to jump into. Um, again, you have this this crazy resume that I think it would blow a lot of people's minds because it's um, there's a lot of things that you've done that people haven't done, but there's there's so many things that are are, are easy to relate to, and I think it'd be very encouraging to some guests that are going through some maybe some some difficult times or through a lot of changes, mm-hmm. right? And you're somebody that's that's no stranger to change, so. Um, I'd love to know a little bit of background, kind of where you consider yourself from, and and also on top of that, you know, let's get a little foundation, a little background of, of who is Charlie. So um, definitely um, a child of the world, a military brat, uh, and my parents also were uh, military children, but they spent most of their years in Texas. So I always refer to Texas as home. I always have referred to Texas as home. But something that's ironic is. While I spent a lot of summers and vacations here, I never lived in Texas until I was a married army spouse. (laughs) So well into my adulthood. Um, But uh, I currently live in my 29th home. Um, Some of those are homes, you know, during the same assignment, multiple homes in a location, but uh, lived everywhere. Uh, My Air Force time, a lot of that was in the Midwest. My dad was a missile man. Mm. Um, We spent a little bit of time overseas in Spain. Lucky for us, he happened to be fluent in Spanish, and they needed somebody who spoke Spanish, and that Texas boy got us a uh, a nice uh, four-year stint in Madrid, Spain. Um, and then I've uh, spent some time along the East Coast and a lot of time in the South as an Army spouse. That's wonderful. And I'm uh, as a you know someone you say wasn't wasn't born in Texas, right? Right. No. But uh, but you've spent a, a good portion of your life here, and we'd be proud to call you uh, a Texan. So, yes. uh, <laughs> Well, uh, you know, given your upbringing, uh, you had, had told me, and I'd also read a little bit more about uh, you're your an Army granddaughter on both sides. Mm-hmm. You're an Air Force daughter. Uh, sorry, yeah, an Air Force daughter, an Army niece. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you seem to make this pivot in college, well, I mean, just on paper at least, uh, <laughs> towards women's studies. So how, tell me about that leap and kind of how that went over. Oh, gosh. College. The years for finding yourself, right? Um, <laughs> except for, you know, I, I, maybe I did. I found a little bit of myself. Uh, I went off to college initially to study sports medicine. I had done a little bit of athletic training in high school, and I definitely did high school athletics. Uh, and so I thought for sure that that's what I was going to want to study. So I got there, and my freshman year I took kinesiology, and I was miserable. I really did not like kinesiology. And, uh, you know, the head of the program said, if you don't like kinesiology, you're probably not going to like the rest of this field of study. 
Um, I spent a little bit of time doing my core courses just toward graduation. And with that, I did a women in literature class and I enjoyed it. And uh, when I did that course, I decided that, hey, you know, um, I'm going to kind of keep with some of these courses. And Hofstra University launched a women's studies program. And I was in that inaugural class for women's studies at Hofstra and uh, pretty proud of that. Oh, very cool. Um, yeah, I appreciate giving me some some background there too. And uh, and I think you also mentioned a little bit about uh, publishing. Yeah, so that was uh, that was my major. Uh, women's studies was sort of my my side gig in college. But uh, yeah, as as part of that, you know, probably part of the literature courses I took, I was introduced to the publishing program. And what's interesting about that is it really felt a little bit more like a trade, and not so much just one of these wishy-washy college majors. And so um, they really were setting up people for success. It was one of the programs out of that university that um, immediately translated to work, uh, usually up and around New York City. So that was my plan, that I was going to graduate in publishing and and head on to the city and uh, go work for a publishing company. <laughs> I, I guess uh, there's there a little bit of different plan uh, than, uh, than what you had. And, uh, yeah. Um, and so it's interesting because I'm I'm looking at you know again on paper you know this you're you're raised uh, you know uh, by by a heavily military family right mm-hmm. you kind of go off into this different world of, of Hofstra University women's right. studies New York and then very liberal university <laughs> right right and then uh, but the military influence didn't really end there because you have a sister in the army. Uh, right? Oh, that... Sister uh, who married Navy. Hey, sister who married Navy. Okay. Uh, both brothers in the Army. Okay, excellent. Thank you. See, I I, I got to get my notes right. Well, um, <laughs> there's a lot of us. <laughs> there's a lot to keep up with, right? Yeah, there's a, it's, it's all over the, all over the map. But, uh, um, and then, of course, most importantly, as far as as far as I'm concerned, at least in this case, is uh, then you married into the Army. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Uh, but and... that's all interrelated, you know. So both hmm. of my brothers, um, had decided early on they were going to go in the military. My dad was Air Force. My uncle's a uh, West Point graduate. Mm. Um, he's also a double A amputee from Vietnam. So that actually is very influential for me as well. He's a wounded warrior. Uh, I grew up with a wounded warrior, and I sort of thought every family had had somebody like that. You mm. know, it's interesting. But uh, that uncle was very influential for my brother. So both of my brothers trotted off to West Point, um, and I ended up marrying one of their friends. <laughs> oh, f- fascinating. I, I don't think it's the first time I've heard that story. But <laughs> yeah. um, and if my, my timelines are, are correct, you became an Army spouse pretty pretty shortly after college? Yeah, I, uh, I did. I was only 21 years old, and uh, Jay was already out in the Army, um, and I was graduating, and there's to be honest, it was just a lot of pressure um, that I probably should not pick up a career in New York City because it would make make being his girlfriend or you know even eventual wife probably near impossible. Mm-hmm. That that was sort of the message that was sent to me. Uh, when I look back now, that that wasn't true, but at that time, that was sort of the message sent. So. Um, a lot of people were leaning into us to quick hurry up and get married. So six days after I graduated, I walked away from from everything that I had planned and married and then found myself in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, now Fort Liberty. Wow. So so not shortly after college, basically. Like <laughs> you, immediately. You walk the stage and then walk the aisle. <laughs> Correct. Basically just kept walking. Yeah. 
Wow. Um, and uh, I'm 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 proud, very happy to call myself friends of, of you know you and Jay both. But you know I'd, I'd love to kind of ask some questions and dig deeper in some areas that I just don't really necessarily know about your, your life. So I hope you'll join me on this journey. And, sure. Uh, <laughs> um, but I'm hoping you can give a little bit of background on some of the experiences uh, or I guess the challenges of, of being an Army spouse, right? Because a lot of people don't don't know or don't understand that. Right. I, I think, um, I mean, it's challenging. Let's just say it's challenging. But what I would also say is that it was maybe even extra challenging for me hmm. because you already pointed out I had this whole long legacy, this family history. It's the family business. And um and, you know, I had a little stint away when I went off to this four-year university where I kind of learned, you know, maybe that isn't my only business, but, uh, and then a lot of pressure to, to hurry up and get married. And so I feel like um, going into it, I worked my tail off to, to try to do everything right, right? So I would say our first couple of years of marriage was uh, me just trying to be the good army spouse, like you know, wearing the proper clothes, making sure I was on time for everything and um, keeping a home and having the ability to entertain at any given moment uh, if he, if somebody was in town or he wanted to have somebody over. So I would say our first couple of years in the Army were, uh, were me just trying to get my feet under me mm-hmm. and project myself as, as sort of that perfect Army spouse, you know, back in my mom's generation, the white glove wearing army spouse uh, my generation fortunately didn't do that um but i still had a full set of china and all the all the stuff all the accoutrements i needed to do that role and to do that role well um and so that's how it started and i would say that in and of itself had its own challenges uh, but i had no idea in 1996 when i got married what was uh, what was coming and so uh 2001 yeah changed a lot Oh, I imagine, and um, and so prior to that, actually, before I step into that, it sounds like you were stepping into, you know, again, a kind of a different world, uh, you know, of of being a spouse, right? Going from a a liberal arts college and and kind of a, a very independent, you know, um, situation, uh, right into being, uh, you know, being being a homemaker and, and and keeping up with with all of these things that that I'll tell you, you know, I. I I've done it while my wife's been away. Yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. lot of work. Right. I have so much respect for what she does, and, and, and I'd like to think we partner on those things. But um, had you seen a, a good example of, of those things growing up as far as being that, that level of support, that kind of support? I saw an example. Or I, saw, I saw many examples, um, but I don't think they were necessarily – the right examples. They were the only examples I had. And so I think that there was just a lot of expectation put on me and that I put on myself from what I saw as sort of that perfect billboard army spouse. And so I think a lot of those early years was uh, me tied to that perfectionism. Like what I'm here to do is just to be the best supporting actress at all times. Hmm. And then you add to that, Right, you say 2001. Yeah. Uh, had you, before 2001, before and after 2001, what was the, was there any difference in how often you saw Jay? Uh, 
Yes, yes, 100%. I would say, you know, in those early years, there was a lot of field time and training. And I thought, oh, this is this is terrible. Like, <laughs> he's gone for a week. He's gone for two weeks. This is the worst. I mean, the longest was uh, these uh, national training center rotations, you know, and I think he left once for like four whole weeks, you know, and, uh, and all of us were like, this is the worst. And we, you know, we just didn't know what we didn't know, but, uh, but we made the most of those times. And uh, I do think that that definitely kind of set the tone or helped set us up kind of what we did in those periods of him being away. The rest of us spouses kind of set us up for, uh, for the big change. 2001, um, really for our family, 2000, two was the much bigger change 2001 Mm. was it was a change for the country and certainly was a change for some military forces almost immediately but ours was kind of a it that sort of teed us up for what was coming um in 2002 and 2003 for our family wow and if you're willing to share uh, this is this something that i don't know the answer to and and i imagine there's a lot of people that, that don't really understand what this is like you know, if I travel for work, right, I'm, I'm, I'm out for, you know, a week, I've got constant contact with my wife, I've right? Got my phone in my pocket, you know, we can, I can call, I can, you know, FaceTime, I can you know, do all these things. What is that level of contact like when your spouse is in the field? Well, this is life before cell phones. Mm-hmm. So we didn't even have cell phones. So there's, <laughs> there's really no contact. Um, once in a while, he would maybe get to a phone um, because he, they traveled back to get supplies or something. And, and then he would maybe make a quick phone call home. But we had long extended periods with absolutely no contact if they were in the field or when they went out to these national training center locations, they still have this period of time where they do a communication blackout while they're doing, um, exercises out there. So, um, so you can go, even in today's modern technology, you can, you can go for periods of time where where there will be a forced sort of blackout Mm -hmm. of communication and you get used to them. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, does it get any easier with time? And I mean, from, let's just say, at what point do you think it maybe became easier? Um, I, the blackouts don't, okay, so it became easier when um, modern technology and communications caught up. Mm-hmm. What I will say kind of toward the end of our military career time, what was hard then is that a blackout meant something was going on and they shut down communication for a reason. Mm. And so I think what we went to from before of like, hey, we just don't get communicate, like there are no cell phones. Mm to a period of like, yeah, we're starting to get some technology, internet or whatever on deployments or just in general to we're going to do a complete uh, communication blackout uh, while they're forward in theater. And that generally means something's happening and they don't want information getting back faster than they need to maybe inform family members that something has gone on. So they'll shut down just to to kind of keep things... (laughs) keep things um quiet until more information's available yeah it should be available right right and i I mean i think this is a a chance to give shout outs to moms because you're not only just dealing with yourself right Right. you've got you've got others (laughs) that you're also responsible right so how do you uh, how do you handle 
that with your kids when you're worried about the safety of your spouse? And this goes beyond military, right? How do you right. put on a good face for your kids? What were, did you have resources available? Were, were there were there things that you kind of you know uh, lean lean on or lean back to 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 try to deal with those times? And yeah, so. Um... Let me talk about earlier kids first. So Jay's uh, first big deployment overseas was 2002. Um, and he went over for approximately seven months. Uh, and I had a, I had a toddler at that time. And uh, what's interesting was he was in an all-male unit. At that time, they did not have females in combat arms. So uh, it was really like the men were gone. It was like, it was like, you know, the rapture happened or something and only men had been taken. It was just a neighborhood of women and kids. Um, but uh, we were all in the same boat. Pretty much, you know, we were all in the same boat. Here or there, there were a couple of um, spouses doing school stuff or whatever. But uh, we got really good at like, all right, let's all meet at the playground behind all the houses today at five o'clock, bring a potluck dish, and we would dinner together mm-hmm. and uh, – parent in community for a little while and you know each of us somebody may be having a really stressful time or something going on and so they were allowed their breakdown with a whole community of support and so I really really learned the value of community in that um in that period of time 2002 and I learned trust because when you're by yourself and you're away from family and you know you've just met, met all these people probably, um, you, you know, you arrive to a new duty station, you really learn to sink the roots fast and you learn to trust. And so, yeah, I really loved that time. Fast forward, what we built in 2002 sustained us in 2003. Our husbands came home for 10 weeks. Um, talk about messing, <laughs> messing with people. Uh, <laughs> they came home for 10 weeks. And what, what I remember at that time, and this is when I like pat myself on the back for like, wow, I am, I am becoming a good army spouse. I have been taking notes and I have been watching, you know, we, we'd been married, what, probably seven years or so at that point. Jay comes home and initially when he comes in, he's got, he's got one duffel bag. And so I just figured like everything else is, is following. And so, you know, we wash his one duffel bag of stuff. And, um, a few days later I say, um, where's the rest of your stuff? And he kind of skirts around the answer and immediately I'm like, what is going on? What is happening here? He's not, um, he's not saying much. And then I said to him a couple days later, I said, Hey, did you paint over your bumper numbers on your vehicles when you left Kuwait? And this was my like army detective, army wife detective skills. Because when he went over in 2002, painting the bumper number, every vehicle has a unique number on it that says like who it belongs to. So, you know, anything with a six has a commander in it. Um, and so it could be, you know, HHC six or you know which would have been jays at the time so anyway i just remember him saying because you do that with stencils it's such a pain and like paint painting those bumper numbers i just had remembered him talking about it so i knew when he left they paint over it and the next unit going on rotation would paint their numbers on that bumper but they didn't paint over it 
So I said, um, did you paint over your bumper numbers? And he, he his eyes got huge. <laughs> and he said, uh, what? And I said, did you paint over your bumper numbers? And he said, I did not. And I said, when are you going back? And he said, I'm not allowed to say. And I said, okay. And uh, what I knew just from the dialogue and everything happening at that time is I knew that we're going to go back to invade Iraq Mm. because we'd been sitting in Kuwait so long. Why would you send this unit home to take them back? They didn't need another training rotation. So I knew that there was, there was a looming invasion and, um, he, uh, he ended up going back, uh, at the very early part of the new year. And uh, what's really ironic is, you know, at some point in time, they did tell the families. They were just waiting for the, it was a few weeks later that they let us all know. Mm. Um, And for a small little post, which was Fort Benning, now called Fort Moore, uh, Georgia, they had 336 babies born nine months later on a post that generally had 30 babies a month. Wow. <laughs> so 336. We were, it was crazy. And I was one of those that was pregnant. Hmm. Um, and so let me just say that with community, um, that I was pregnant and it ended up being a high risk pregnancy. Hmm. Um, I was incredibly sick and my parents came out at Thanksgiving. Jay was ramping up. He left right at New Year's. Uh, and my parents said, we want to take her and Nate was three at the time, our son back to California with us. And my husband was like, no, I only have a few more weeks at home. And they're like, we want, you need to focus on getting your soldiers ready. Thank goodness. I had military parents to, Hmm. to sort of understand that he wasn't neglecting me as a husband, but he was taking care of soldiers. And, uh, so they said, we'd like to take her home with us for a little while and you can come out at Christmas before you head back. And, uh, they, we, they fought, they actually had a, they had a fight. I was too sick to jump in, but, uh, they had a fight. So my, my mom won. <laughs> I come from a long line of uh, strong women and, uh, she took me to, uh, California. Jay did come out at Christmas. We had as good a time as we could have for how sick I was. Um, and, we, uh, I ended up staying out there. He deployed immediately. I, I had to say goodbye to him in my parents' foyer. Uh, goodbye to a husband that was going to war with a three-year-old right after Christmas and pregnant. And um, I remember my dad being, looking scared hmm. or, or worried, just upset and I think that upset me more. I didn't, because I kind of just, I don't know, I, I wanted I wanted to feel like everything was going to be okay. So I spent the first couple months um, of the new year in California, but my heart knew I had a job to do as a military spouse. We had multiple hundred families um, that Jay had within his uh, unit of soldiers and that I had a vol- volunteer, but sort of still a nudged responsibility that because Jay was a company commander at the time that I was in charge of this large HHC contingent of families. Mm -hmm. So I was doing my phone chains and the call downs and all the things you do at that time, but I was doing it from California. Um, 
and one of the spouses, I said, I'm ready, I'm ready to go home. I mean, I feel a little better, but not really, but I'm ready to go home. I've got to continue my medical care in the army system and everything anyway. So, um, begrudgingly, my parents let me go back. They both worked full time, so they didn't have the option to travel with me and come support me. Um, and another army spouse flew out stayed for a couple of days with me and my parents. And then she flew with me and Nate back. I mean, that's how awesome that community was yeah. that she would take that time. Um, we flew back and not long after we got back, um, and by the way, that spouse was pregnant too. Our, our kids are three days apart, but, uh, I went into the doctor and, uh, they said, we think you're going to lose the baby. And I, was, you know, I already knew it was a little girl. I had already done these appointments. My husband is forward in theater. We're not talking to them very much. And, um, I was like, okay, okay. I went home, um, upset. I mean, I left there stoic, but I got to the car, sobbed, got home. I called to our our rear detachment commander, a, a military person who was left uh, to kind of help shepherd, take care of families, and send any information forward that was important. Um, I called him. He was a friend of mine. And I said, hey, I think I'm going to lose the baby. I'm going to put a Red Cross message forward to Jay. I'm telling you in case the unit calls. And he said, I haven't heard from them in days. Um, they're still sitting in Kuwait. And uh, so I put the Red Cross message or started the process of putting a Red Cross message forward. And a couple minutes later, Jay calls me, not because of the Red Cross, but because the unit ended up calling back minutes after I hung up with the rear detachment commander. And he said, Hey, Jay Maselli is going to get a Red Cross message. You need to get him to a phone. And, uh, that battalion commander hung up from that call went out and uh, this lieutenant colonel found the the full colonel, the brigade commander, and said, I got to find my HHC commander. He needs to call home. And uh, Jay called home and uh, from the commander's phone and the the 06 commander was actually in the office when he called home and I kind of relayed what was going on. And um, he said, okay, I'll I'll call you back. And uh, when he called me back a few minutes later, they said, we'll, we'll send him home. We will send him home. Um, and I said, don't. There's nothing you're going to be able to do back here. But I understand that that's going to cause some chaos up there. Um, let me go. They're going to send me to another um, specialist, a perinatologist. Let me see how that appointment goes. It's uh, I should get in there sometime this week, um, but don't just just stay put. It was the hardest decision I ever made because I wanted my husband. Yeah. Um, and he was so. I mean, I knew I was uh, tearing him apart trying to decide what's he going to do. He's got multiple hundred soldiers and he's got a wife. Um, anyway, uh, I ended up going. You know, my sister-in-law, also a military spouse, was in Fort Jackson, South Carolina, about five hours away. I called my brother, relayed what was going on. Didn't even tell my parents yet because uh, I knew they were going to lose their minds. Um, and Chuck said, Krista's going to take off of work. She's coming right now. She's going home, throwing some stuff. 
um, in the car and she'll be there. And then this is such an army wife thing to do. But Krista was coming to go with me to two major medical appointments. And she grabbed her neighbor who also took off a work in Fort Jackson because those guys were not deployed and brought that neighbor military spouse because she knew she needed to be there for me and she needed to bring a spouse to watch Nate. Hmm. So just the way we think, right? And so anyway, we went to the um, couple um, appointments the next couple of days. Um, and they said, you know, they let us know things looked a little bit brighter. Um, you know, that I wasn't necessarily going to lose the pregnancy and that, the, but there was nothing they're going to be able to do, but they were going to watch and wait. And so, but they said, we're not, not hopeful. You know, they gave me a lot of hope. And so Jay called me after those appointments. So within 24, 36 hours, he called me and, uh, I was like, I think it's good. I think, I think we're going to be okay. And he said, we're going to call her Amy. And he said, after your grandma, we're going to call her Amy. And I said, all right, I think everything's going to be, you know, I think everything's going to be okay. And he said, he said, I prayed about it and I know everything's going to be okay. And we prayed about it together on the phone. And then I did not speak to him again. And they invaded the country within, they invaded Iraq within 48 hours of that last phone call where he had hope, but did not know if Amy was going to make it. And then once they got through the invasion and into Baghdad, that 06 unit commander, that amazing man, um, said to Jay, as soon as they got to Baghdad and got settled, I'm putting you as an individual and sending you home to be with your wife. And uh, Jay got home within a week of Amy being born and got to be there for her birth, which was a whole high risk birth with heart doctors and everything else. And that kid came out perfectly fine. <laughs> Absolutely a redheaded, stubborn kid. And she's been stubborn ever since. <laughs> so, um, wow. Yeah, that's a lot. Sorry, that was a whole lot. No, but there's uh, there's no sorry. That I mean, every every second of that was. Um, I appreciate you sharing because, I think there, you know, I've I've known you for a little bit, and there, there's a lot of elements of that story that I just did not know. And something you said struck me, though. Well, many things you said struck me, but um, a couple things. Uh, one, you know, I I never want to gloss over what Jay went through as well right? right this is this i know this is not a one-sided story right? right but i do think it's important to elevate and hear the other side of the story as well which i don't i don't know that we always do right um and the the other piece something you said that um that that kind of got me thinking you you, you mentioned when when jay said you know he didn't know how long until he was going to be deployed or he wasn't able to say yeah and the, the closest thing I can think in my head is, is thinking about awaiting test results for a diagnosis you're pretty sure is not good, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah. what, what, how, do you, how do you relate to that? And, and what, what blows me away is trying to wrap my mind around how do you, how do you have peace in that moment? It's easy to have peace if you say, hey, it's, it's going to be this amount of time until I find out this news, or it's going to be this amount of time. If you have an end date, right, it's a lot easier to come to terms and come to peace when you have a, a solid you know, ground and, and, and date to work from. Can you just tell me a little bit more about just how did you, how did you work through that process mentally of, of the unknown? 
I think, you know, in the, in the period before Jay left with him, um, what you saw was a bunch of families, you know, we lived in like this beautiful little perfect looking neighborhood, right? Or we all tried to make it look perfect anyway with our flowers and all that. But you saw everybody kind of turning in. You did not see a whole lot of outdoor activity and people just like soaking up all of the time that they could get. So it was interesting because it was the time of year that we would normally all be out outside or out doing things together mm-hmm. or whatever. And so um, the unit leadership really left us alone too in that time. They really... Uh, we didn't have social events or obligations or anything because they knew what was coming. And so uh, we just, I wanted, you know, I remember thinking if he's going to go back and it's for combat, I don't know what that looks like. I hadn't, I hadn't experienced that in my lifetime. I mean, there were some campaigns with Haiti and Bosnia, but those were not, didn't impact me or my world. So I did have the understanding that what was about to happen was going to really impact me and my world. And I remember thinking, golly, I just want him to have this time with Nate. I want Nate to remember him because Nate was just at that really tough age of three Hmm. or about Hmm. to be three um, where I thought, man, if something happens, he doesn't come back. It could go either way. He may not have any recollection of this man or you know, or maybe we can do some fun things. And it's funny because Nate does have some recollection of that period of time. Mm. It is some of his earliest memories. So that is interesting. Uh, And you, 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 you you helped me segue very well. Thank you. I don't know if that's intentional (laughs) or not, but I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you you talk a little bit about uh, social events. You you mentioned that the the, the kind of the social events kind of shut down, everybody kind of turned in, but I do want to talk about social events too, about what, what is it like when, what was it like to be an army spouse when given all of the color and background you just given us, Uh right? Jay's back doing social events. Yeah. You're, you're now the army spouse again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can can you give me a little color around what that, what, what it was like to step back into that role? Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, actually when they're gone, you, for lack of another word, you're like almost more powerful, right? Because like suddenly you're not the plus one mm. at all times. Social events to me are so interesting in the military life. I'm Mrs. Jason A. Maselli. Mm. If I go to any event, that's Mrs. Jason A. Maselli. That's Colonel Maselli's wife. I don't really have a name. I don't have, if you go to your place setting at a formal dinner, it says Mrs. Jason A. Maselli. Because if it said Mrs. Charlene Maselli, that means I'm a widow mm. in in proper etiquette terms. So I, uh, I remember, you know, getting thank you notes from senior spouses and stuff that's, that the stationery would say, you know, along the lines of Mrs. Jason A. Maselli, like that your identity is supposed to be completely tied and wrapped up in theirs. Mm. And so um, I loved the social events. I had, um, as far as the community, you know, back to what you said before, like, what do you lean on? What are your resources? Your resources are always people. It, it doesn't even matter if you're civilian or you're military. Yes, they have agencies to help military families, but it always all comes out of the people and the people are what connect you to the agencies anyway, you know? And so, uh, social events, um, 
gave us great opportunities to build strong connections that probably carried us from day one in the United States Army to his retirement. And there are a few people that were there on day one, you know, some of the first spouses I've ever met that were at our retirement ceremony mm-hmm. here. And so um, they're essential. Would, would I do them different? Maybe. I mean, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have Mrs. Jason Amoselli on name placards. I'd probably let everybody just go by their own name. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but I wouldn't change having them because I think the tradition uh, is good. There's it's a lot of fun. Um, and I, I enjoyed most of them, Hmm. but you know, we had multiple other deployments, um, through Jay's career, you know, that final one being, um, one when I had a a teenager, you know, who had her own direct communication to her dad. So that was cool. Um, you know, she could text him, she could FaceTime him. Sometimes I would hear her talking to him like down the hall and I didn't even, like I wasn't invited to the conversation. So that was cool by the final deployments. But um, the ones in the middle, actually, I, I'm going to highlight a couple of my horrible mom moments. Um, but it's interesting because it, it was it's because of the lifestyle and kind of the communication and, the, and that put me in the quandary. So my first like highlight mom of the year moment my kid my son would tell you this absolutely ranks up there for one of his favorite moments um one of his worst moments that he can laugh a lot about now um the uh, one of the resources available for military kids was is this summer camp and they still have it it's called operation purple purple is often referred to um, refers to all branches of service. If you bled all the colors, oops, all the colors together, they would make purple, right? So when you talk about purple kids or the month of the military child, they'll say purple up, and that's just a blending of all the colors of the military hmm. services. So uh, Nate is seven or eight, seven to eight years old, and we are in a schoolhouse environment in Kansas. And the army says to Jay, hey, we're going to graduate you early in April, and you're going to go down to Fort Hood, Texas, now Fort Cavazos, and um, you're going to deploy immediately. So as parents, like this, now our kids are school age. We've, we've had a break from combat operations in 2003. Our family had a personal break while my husband did graduate school, and he went up and taught at West Point, um, which was incredibly, um, foundational and formative for my kids, um, who later both chose to go to West Point, uh, because of that time that we spent there while Jay was a professor. So we went back out to the army service and, uh, and so now he's going back out to a unit. And so we, we decide, all right, we're going to pull Nate early from second grade and we're going to move down to, uh, Texas so that we can have all the time that we can have before Jay has to deploy again. And as part of that, like we know a family down there with a son who's Nate's age. And she says, Hey, there's an operation purple camp. Our kids can go for a week. It'll be so awesome. So I say to Nate, like, Oh my gosh. And when we get to Texas and when your dad deploys, like after that, you're going to go to camp with Trevor with all the other deployed kids. And I'm talking it up and like kind of immediately he sort of shuts down. He just, 
kind of shuts down. And I was like, what the heck? It's going to be so awesome. And like the National Guard would come out to the camp and soldiers would, would do stuff like archery with the kids. So I'm like talking up everything I can about this. So we get to Texas, Jay deploys. The next big thing for the family is Nate is going to Operation Purple. And um, he's miserable while we're packing. He's miserable in the car with the other family and we're driving Trevor and Nate out there. Trevor bounces out of the car and heads off and Nate's kind of gloomy and hanging around the car and I get him in his tent and I was like, all right, I got to go. I'm going to send you letters. You know, I'll see you soon. And, um, and then I left and I sent him letters and he had like one phone call home and he's miserable on the phone and I go and pick him up and he's pretty miserable. And the camp staff has said he's been pretty, (laughs) pretty awful all week. And I, get back and like he's home for three days and he says to me when I'm tucking him in bed one night I mean the kid's seven maybe he's eight he's eight he said um well you didn't tell me I was coming home and I said what (laughs) and he said you didn't tell me I was coming home and I was like what are you talking about and he said for Operation Purple Camp you didn't tell me it was a week I thought I had to go for as long as dad was deployed and so he thought all the deployed kids were getting dropped somewhere oh, no. to, to stay for the whole deployment. And he just knew that his dad was going to be gone for a really long time. And I hadn't given a clear end date. Talk about miscommunication. This poor kid and what was going through his head mm. that he thought all of these kids kind of got shoved off somewhere by the military, like to this holding place. So... <laughs> That was, so that was miscommunication one. The second story, same deployment. Jay says, hey, they're going to send me over to that Iranian border and I'm going to build a a Ford operating base over there. I said, okay. He's telling me this on the phone and um, he was doing family phone calls. We're hearing from him all the time. He's in a place with, with a lot of communication, everything else. So he said, it's going to take about 90 days before we get Camo out there. You will not hear from me. You're not going to get emails or phone calls for 90 days. If for any reason I come back to the main base for supplies, of course, I'll call you. But let me just set the tone. You will not hear from me for 90 days. Great. Now I know. I got it. I can do this. We're, you know, no reason to rush home to make sure we don't miss a phone call or anything. Because we're all, military spouses are glued. Mm. At this point, we had cell phones. I'm glued to this cell phone and the house phone. So worried I'm going to miss a phone call and we're not going to have communication. So anyway, um. Now I know. So the kids and I start living life more freely. And a couple weeks into Jay not calling, Amy comes up to me. She's five. Nate's eight. We already know. He's back from Operation Purple Camp where he actually didn't have to deploy. And uh, and Amy says to me, hey, mom, I'm, I'm in, I'm like sitting at the desk. She said, hey, mom. I said, yeah. She goes, did our dad really die and you're just not telling us? And I was like, what? (laughs) What? And she said, well, he just stopped calling. And when he stopped calling, we just thought you didn't want us to know because you thought we'd be scared. And her brother is peeking around the corner. So they've clearly been having conversations about this. So unbeknownst to me, and I don't know, I don't know as a military mom or, or military spouse and mom of kids, like, 
I don't know how much to tell them and how much not to tell them. And clearly I misjudged in that, in that case. And, um, I was like, Oh no, 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 no. And, you know, sat them down and took out a map and showed them like he was here and now he's going here and this is what's going on. And he said, we wouldn't hear from him and it was all very planned and I'm not worried and you shouldn't be worried. And you know, all of that, but you know, it's all, there was no book for this. They, there was nobody to tell me this. Um, you know, obviously I advised other spouses after me, but yeah. that generation, we were kind of writing that, how it looks for families and stuff as we went along. So mm-hmm. very um, interesting, but anyway, so. Yeah, well, no, <laughs> no and anyway, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you stopped me and uh, didn't let me, let me rush through those because those are... <laughs> It's good stories about parenting and yeah, <laughs> very humbling. After, yeah, very humbling. Wow. And uh, you know, we don't just when you think you know what you know, you know. And yeah. and that was our second, really, that was our third deployment. And I thought we got this. And you never think, oh, the kids are thinking this, right? <laughs> no, I hadn't even thought about it from their perspective. Um, well, I did want to ask the, the 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 last question. Kind of kind of goes around that that question that, that Amy asked. But did you ever um, have an experience where you you, th- you thought maybe you were going to get bad news about Jay? <laughs> yes, actually, early on. So back to that um, first deployment, um, really the second one, because Kuwait was considered a deployment, but uh, none of us really worried. That was that was a training exercise, but. Uh, when he went back, you know, and they had the invasion, um, we had a fourplex of houses and our next door neighbor, uh, was home. He was actually in a schoolhouse environment and it was his day for graduation and they wear their dress blues. And so two of his buddies came over to pick him up and they drove up in their car and parked in front of our house. We shared a sidewalk. Our front doors faced each other and um, jumped out of the car, and uh, I saw them. I could see them from my front window, and we were in that area. I, I saw them pull up. I could see they were in dress uniform. My heart just dropped. And, uh, you know, again, I'm already in this crazy high-risk pregnancy. I've got all – so much was going on at that time. And what's weird is what I did. I, I scooped up Nate, and I ran down the hallway – and put him in his room and put the a baby gate up. You know, he was a toddler. He probably could have climbed it, but I, <laughs> I wasn't really thinking. Put him in there and then went running back to my front door before they'd even made it up. It was a long walk, but before they made it up the walk, flung the front door open and said, what are you here to say? Or something along <laughs> those lines, or what are you here to tell me? And they, these two guys looked stunned. And they looked at me and I said, why are you here? You know, and they said, to get Ben, we're picking up Ben for graduation. And I said, Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I said, you can't do that. (laughs) And I said, my husband's deployed, you just pulled up in full dress blues to come over, you know, to come up the walkway to my house, which is exactly how you get delivered news, Mm -hmm. um, bad news. And so uh, they felt awful. They felt so bad Ben came out and apologized Ben came over later that night so I did I had that but I also um 
was one of the first spouses in homes after somebody did get that news. That was also part of our role um, with Jay in leadership and as a military spouse is after getting an official notification, you know, if a family has indicated that they're open to family support from other spouses and military family members, you know, being on a team of people who would go in to assess the situation and kind of help with those first steps after, Mm. after that bad news. Wow. I'm I'm glad I knew the, the, the end result, the end of the story before he told me that. (laughs) Glad you've met Jane. So you're like, I know where she's going. He's still here, but who are those guys? (laughs) Awesome. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get right back into it. Let's face it. You need to take better care of yourself and you don't make the time. One week you neglect your fitness goals and the next week you neglect your nutrition goals, but you have pre-workouts and supplements and convenient meal prep and food delivery options, so lack of time is usually the root cause. So what about your hair? Well, now there's an on-the-go solution for you. Freewell has been called the pre-workout for your hair, but it doesn't just work for an hour, it works all day. Freewell's Power Gloss delivers moisture while repairing your hair from root to tip and balancing your scalp for the ultimate and best hair health. This is made for everyone, and fellas, this is what I use to style my hair most days. Plus, you're not only helping yourself and the people who look at you, you're helping the world. And that's why Freewell gives a portion of all revenues to fight human trafficking on the ground. Use my code SUCCESSOR, that's S-X-S-S-R, for 20% off your order today at livefreewell.com. Use my code SUCCESSOR, that's S-X-S-S-R, for 20% off your order today at livefreewell.com. All right. All right. <laughs> Back to it. So I uh, want to talk about now Now you're we're entering um, the year 2009. You've been married for a period of time now, you know, 13 years, I think by, by my timeline, if my calculation was correct. Um, and then you, you took this, this new turn in life. You became a CrossFit instructor. Correct. Right. Can you, can you tell me how that came to be? This seems to be a little bit out of, out of left field from what we've heard so far. Right. Right. So I spent that time that actually, uh, was kind of in that same timeline as that, uh, one deployment where I, uh, was, uh, kind of the best mom ever. Um, (laughs) And what I did realize was that I I had stopped doing anything for myself. So um, during that season, uh, some of my girlfriends were like, we're we're doing this uh, CrossFit uh, course over um, on the uh, military installation. And so, you know, you ought to come do that with us. So I did. And I got really into it. I I can be pretty competitive. And so the uh, U.S. Army was identifying people, you know, who were sticking to it and and showing up uh, and saying, hey, we'll pay for you to do a CrossFit certification. We'll pay for that certification if you will come back here to our resiliency campus um, where they're inviting Army families. I mean, this is the height of deployment. It's right after the surge, but we're still really fatigued, especially um, installations like Fort Hood at that time. Um, with the first cab division, just, just constantly like a revolving door. And so, um, they were building this campus, not just for soldiers, um, 
who were kind of off cycle or, or back from deployment, but also for family members. And uh, it was a whole wellness campus. They, they really put a lot of thought into it. But uh, I did my CrossFit certification, and then I coached classes there um, for for the next year or two before they moved us to DC. And then when we got to DC, I, I wanted to still coach CrossFit with uh, military families. I felt like I owed it back because the army had paid for my certification. There was no opportunity to do that there in an official way. So I ended up um, rounding up neighbors of all branches of service in our neighborhood in Washington, D.C., and built a whole CrossFit gym in my garage and coached any military family member for free. And then did a paid gig over at another CrossFit gym where I, where I coached, you know, for a little bit of, a little bit of cash, (laughs) a little bit of money. Good. Yeah. Good good for you. So it was great. I enjoyed it. And this was, this, this this seems to be this is just an outsider's opinion, but that seems to be a kind of defining step for you in a different direction. Correct. Yeah. The first thing that wasn't uh, Mrs. Jason Amoselli. In fact, Jay followed me to CrossFit. Um, <laughs> he also got certified later because you know he definitely wasn't going to let me have that you know by myself. Um, but it is. It was the first time where I was. My kids were school age. Um, I, I was still in it fully in it as a military spouse, but I started to realize, you know, that that's all I was, was Nate and Amy's mom and, um, you know, at that point, probably what Major Maselli's wife. Um, And that was, if some, you know, if I left the earth that day, that was going to be my only legacy. And I, that started to really weigh on me heavy at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to think on on a positive note, maybe it wasn't that he was just trying to match you, but it's that you inspire people to do things that they didn't think they could do. Could be that too. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to say that. So. Yeah. That was, that's what a nice way to look at it. <laughs> I also think, uh, you know, I, I purchased all this gym equipment and, uh, he wanted to use it too. So he was like, I better go get certified. And if there's one thing we know as spouses, like it's, it's never a great idea to, to teach your kid to drive or teach your kid, teach your spouse to drive stick shift. And it's not a good idea to, to coach your spouse in CrossFit. Like those are better left to other, other people. So yeah, I didn't want to be his coach. Jack was a chick. Good, good. Uh, well, and then, and then on paper again, going back to paper, because this is kind of where I've learned about you in this case, right? Right. I've heard some of the stories, but actually piecing it together on timelines a little different, but, uh, the next move you made seemed to be even more in line with what you're doing now, which was your work with TAPS. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell uh, you know, the listeners a little bit more about what TAPS is? Yeah, so TAPS, I, we moved back. You know, with the, you know, understand that while while we're bouncing around, these are often you know jumps to different locations. We did several tours at Fort Hood, Texas. Um, now called Fort Cavazos, but it was Fort Hood at that time. And so we, uh, you know, I was, did my CrossFit certification and everything down there, moved away to the Pentagon for a couple of years and lived outside of Washington, D.C., only to return back um, for Jay to take a major level command there. Um, Kids are in school. Jay's busy in command. I'm supporting that. Um, But uh, I'm trying to find a little something for me. So I go uh, initially to volunteer and for an organization on the post called TAPS. And it is located in this beautiful campus called um, 
the SOS office campus, which is Survivor Outreach Services. Mm. That's the government entity that takes care of families of the fallen. TAPS is a nonprofit, um, which, of course, is an acronym because we love those in the United States military. (laughs) It's the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. And uh, I went over there and volunteered my time and did office hours and admin work um, at the TAPS office. And I did that. For quite some time, I had I'd started a little bit of work with them before we moved up to D.C., but as soon as I came back, it became very routine. And so I uh, started volunteer with them in 2012, probably for a good 13 or 14 months. Um, stayed in that volunteer role, and then we got very, very close to um, something that was five years in the making. In fact, we had been there when this occurred which was there was going to be a, a large trial um, for Major Hassan, who um, is also known as the Fort Hood shooter. Uh, and so we had been living at Fort Hood when that incident occurred uh, that actually was very impactful for families and families around us. Um, just to kind of recap, it was a uh, United States soldier, um, military mental health doctor who um, – took uh, loaded weapons uh, onto the installation and into a military clinic um, and opened fire. He ended up killing 13. They they actually often say 13.1 because uh, one of the female soldiers was pregnant, so they, mm-hmm. they do a half marathon, and, and that point one is supposed to represent the, uh, the unborn child. But uh, he killed 13 people that day um, at Fort Hood. And it took five years for that to go to trial. So we leave Fort Hood, whatever's going on behind the scenes legally, who the heck knows. Um, We move back to Fort Hood. I'm volunteering for TAPS. And the United States government decides to uh, work with TAPS as part of that trial for support for the family members of those 13 soldiers. Hmm. Um, actually, a couple of them were civilians, but you know, mostly soldiers that were killed that day. And so as we're marching close to the trial, TAPS is like, we're going to need like all hands on deck. They actually bring me on under contract uh, to help out with victim ad- advocacy. It's hmm. not a role I was particularly trained for, but I had done a lot of work with families of fallen. So I wasn't not prepared. I just probably wasn't prepared for every part of what was what was going to take place. So interestingly enough, our government was um, headed toward and went into government shutdown at that time. Mm. So the majority of support for these families was supposed to come from that Survivor Outreach Services office and the government employees. But when the government shut down, those employees were not allowed to come to work. So all of the work for the trial with the victims fell on staff members from TAPS. You know, me who was brought on in a contracted role and a couple of other staff members who worked there full time. And so what it entailed was five weeks of taking care of 60 family members, kind of taking care of their basic needs and necessities, you know, getting them out to the store and whatnot. Um, When it came to the actual trial, uh, it, it uh, entailed 
the night before having an idea of exactly what what was going to be presented in court the next day mm. there was limited seats in the actual courtroom and there was a secret secret location with an off-site uh closed closed circuit uh courtroom for mm. all the family members to be able to watch so if you are going to be or your loved one is going to be highlighted in testimony the next day we sat down with you the night before and went through all of the graphic evidence because we cannot have you react in the courtroom where there could be a mistrial so part of this role and this is the part i wasn't prepared for was sitting down with families who had lost their loved one and going through graphic evidence and making sure they understood the exact story, what went down and what was going to be said in the courtroom. And then them saying, yes, I'm going to be able to handle it or no, I'm not going to be able to handle hearing, hearing that about my lost one. Um, and so, um, that went on for five weeks. It was exhausting. It was rewarding. Um, it, it showed me that I had, I had it in me to do really, really hard things. And uh, so it definitely caused a lot of stress. It definitely put me into therapy afterwards. Mm. Um, but I also think it was just very pivotal for me and kind of knowing the direction or what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I We're definitely going to dive into that a little bit more because I know this links to a little bit more in, in what you do now, right? right. And, and uh, in a little bit different way. Right. right. Um, um, but I'll say just as a, as a personal quip, I did lose a close, a very close friend in the Aurora shooting in Aurora, Colorado, mm-hmm. the movie theater shooting mm-hmm. and had uh, other friends as well that were, uh, that were shot there that, that survived. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a weird thing because several people that I knew personally that didn't know one another or usually weren't even in the same state together. We're in that same place. And, and, and so I was dialed in on watching that trial because mm. I really wanted to understand. It was really hard to try to take all that information in and decide, am I actually healing through learning this or is this, is this, is this hurting me? So I can't imagine what it's like to be for that to be a close loved one when you're learning all the details of that. Right. Um, and um, it's, it's, it's something I don't talk a lot about, you know, obviously it's not something we bring up at dinner parties, right? but, but the, the weight of, of that and, and what those, the exhaustion you talk about and all the information you get out of those trials is, is very difficult to, to take in and, 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 and learn from and learn if you can heal from it. So I admire that you were able to be there for those folks. I mean, sometimes uh, they bring in folks like yourself. Sometimes they bring in therapy dogs. There's all sorts of support yeah. resources, right, that it's can be so available. True. Right. Um, but, you know uh, what I learned, too, in that trial? Um, I don't know that they got what they needed from it. Um, he chose not to take the stand and testify, so they didn't get any answers. And they also didn't get an apology. I, I hope, I know that our team who worked with him in that trial um, did our part to um, represent well, represent the organization well, represent um, even the United States military well, because, uh, you know, we were working side by side with the prosecution team and everything and um, represent, you know, 
just families well. I, I think they left there better for us, um, but they maybe didn't leave there with full peace because he didn't mm. he didn't give them that. Yeah. And, well, and how do you get full peace out, outside of the, the grace of God when right? when, when you, somebody that is important to you is no longer there? Right. Right. Wow. Um, again, I, I'm I'm very. If anything, I'm glad you were you were there, right? You were somebody that I would want to have in the room if I was going through something like that. And um, I, I do want to highlight just a couple more things because I, I do love statistics, and and so I do want to talk about taps real quick, uh, just on, on some things that I read about it. Uh, but uh, in 2022, they connected with uh, over 8,800 newly bereaved loved ones, loved mm-hmm. ones, adding to the nearly 100,000 military survivors currently receiving support from TAPS, and that was an average of 24 new survivors every day. Secured over $3.9 million in retroactive benefits for survivors, connected military survivors with over $215 million in education benefits. So the work that they have done and are doing is is pretty impressive. Pretty impressive, and uh, they definitely jumped in squarely um, and addressed the issue of veteran suicide. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of those connections per day, unfortunately, are tied to the continuing um, crisis of veteran suicide. Um, But they were one of the first organizations to to know that it was service-connected and to warmly welcome the families in to be able to grieve together in community. So um, huge kudos to them for that. Mm. If And uh, agreed. I don't have anything to add. Sorry. I think you hit it home. Um, so kind of moving into the, the, from TAPS, there were a couple stops along the way before Travis Mannion. That was uh, Mission Hope and BSA, which I want to elaborate on in just a minute, but can can you you kind of tell the the story of Mission Hope real quick? Well, yeah. So what's interesting is, um, you know, I did that time there, um, enjoyed that time with the nonprofit, watched the grant process and everything as part of that, because um, as I said, for that trial, uh, TAPS was brought in under under a government grant. Um, And so being there, seeing the writing of the grant, the execution of the grant, the closing of that grant... Um, kind of got me thinking like, I don't know what I don't know. I've been like a super volunteer for all these years as a military spouse. I've helped with spouses clubs and, and, um, you know, done volunteer work in the community, but I don't even know what I don't know about nonprofits. So, um, what's interesting is not long after my contract ended, when the trial ended, I was like, I think I'm going to go back to graduate school. And I think I know what I want to be when I grow up. And I really know it. And so I decided I was going to pursue a master in nonprofit management. Um, everybody was like, huh, you're going back to school, you know, but I just, I just knew I needed to, I knew I, there was something for me besides being J's plus one is that was something that was still lurking mm. kind of in the background of my life. And so I uh, did all my research, figured out, um, there was a really good program at a university of central Florida and uh, they had an international cohort, and I started that in 2014. And what I love about that program, you know, I kind of go back to to schools that are a little bit more like a, a trade school, meaning an apprenticeship. Um, a huge part of that program was that you had to be partnered with a nonprofit hmm. to do the work. And so, of course, we moved. 
You know, <laughs> of course, I'm at Fort Hood and I know everybody and how many nonprofits and there's, it would be so easy to <laughs> right. do that program right there at Fort Hood. But that's not what that's not what uh, our lot in life is. So we go to Fort Knox, Kentucky, where I have never lived. And um, it's really interesting because I was like starting to stress out. I'd started graduate school. They had said, hey, we're going to need you to partner with a nonprofit. So I'm, you know, looking online, driving around. And um, I ended up going to like my women's Bible study group on a Thursday morning. And they said, we brought in a special speaker today. And uh, this speaker was a woman who was pretty amazing. But anyway, she came in to talk and she was the one woman show kind of holding all the responsibility for the kids of Hardin County, Kentucky. And so you, we often hear about the Appalachia side of Kentucky Mm -hmm. and how rough that is, but actually as a state, it's a state that's been struggling in a big way. Hardin County, um, is, a very low socio and economic county. The largest employer there, the two largest employers were one, the United States Army, hmm. and two, the community hospital system. And um, right before we arrived there, within a few years um, of us arriving there, they'd shut down all of the units on Fort Knox, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and turned it into um, an HRC, or Human Resources Headquarters. So they moved out all these soldiers. It, it had a huge impact economically yeah. in the community. But it was also a struggling community aside from that. So not only have we just moved your biggest economic supplier, but also like it's struggling anyway when right. your community hospital is your largest and best employer. Um <laughs> So this woman um, knew that there was uh, that the kids were struggling in that area. It's a, a area of high drug usage, a big part of you know meth, opioid crisis, all of that going on in the heartland of America. And um, she it, she had it on her heart that she could probably put together an after school program. And um, so she was telling us about it. She was seeing if any of us had teacher licenses or anything to be able to come in. So the idea for this program is the kids come after school. They um, have some recreation time. Then they go into a um, tutoring time with actual retired school teachers Mm. and certified school teachers. From there, they get a warm cooked dinner. They do some Bible study time and then they are put on buses to go home with boxes of food for their family for the week. And um, it was so needed that your your kids could only come one day a week. So I only have you on a Monday because I have a whole new set of kids on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday, on a Thursday. And then Friday was for teens. Um, and so she was talking about it. I'm not a school teacher, but I was like this this is the organization that I'm supposed to help. I just knew it. And so I went up to her afterwards and said, you don't know me. I don't know you. We're going to get to know each other. Um, I think I'm supposed to partner with you as part of my nonprofit Mm -hmm. management degree. And she, of course, was not like, yes, God must have sent you. You know, (laughs) she was leery 
and was like, what does that look like? You know, very protective of the organization. And we uh, ended up becoming very good friends. I ended up writing um, all the information for volunteer management for them, creating a handbook, doing risk assessments and all the risk management. I ended up being there for two years and being able to take every course along the way and use them as my partner nonprofit to kind of get them up to snuff. And I also helped open a second campus for them before I left in another part of uh, Kentucky. So it was hugely impactful. I loved the kids. I didn't just do my grad school work there. I did that during the day, but I also um, volunteered on one campus twice a week after school and then opened another campus uh, for them and volunteered there twice a week and brought my kids in to help. What a, what a mission and, and, and connecting, you know, so many needs together, right? I right. Mean, it, what, what got me to, I think that the things that, I mean, obviously if, if it's a, you know, Christian organization or religious organization of any kind, of course there's going to be a spiritual element very, very likely. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about also meeting the physical needs, meeting mm-hmm. people where they're at. And it was so needed in that area that the school had two previous school buses that they gave to them Mm. to come pick up the kids from school to come to us. And then we had two retired bus drivers that were volunteers who drove these kids home. And home for them, for most of them, meant living with a grandparent. Almost all of them either had a deceased parent or a parent serving time in prison. And so... um, if you can imagine a volunteer force of pushing a hundred people by the time I left, maybe even 120, because these retired school teachers, they're retired, you know, living their best years, but they still want to give to these kids. And some of them would come in one to two days a week. Some of them came in all four days, you know, with the elementary school kids and the current school teachers knew the retired school teachers. So it would be like, hey, Evan, um, they're they're getting a little bit behind in this. So if you could focus on this while you have them practically one-on-one or one-on-two or one-on-three, but in these manageable contingents to keep these kids caught up and give them a chance. Yeah. Uh, it was It was pretty amazing. And I'll say I think my kids, it was very eye-opening for them and what they had um, you know, and, and how lucky they were. Um, and I didn't take them there to look down on the other kids. I took them there to help play at the recreation time and do whatever. And then they would sit off and do their homework, um, as well. But, uh, I did want them to get the sense that volunteering was important. And I did want them to get the sense that they did have more. Hmm. And so that was, it was big for them Yeah, that time. And then, um, from, Mission Hope, you you made a jump over to BSA, Boy Scouts of America. Yes. And so... uh, Let's hear about this. (laughs) I loved... um, I love work with kids. I really, really do. Um, I always have. You know, I I didn't even say, but earlier, you know, my second certification that I paid for myself from CrossFit was a CrossFit kids coach. And um, I worked at a CrossFit gym in Fairfax, Virginia, and um, exclusively coached kids classes for them. I just enjoyed that so much. And so, um, you know, I had done a little, lots of like childcare extra work, you know, as family support back, um, on and around our military time. So anyway, I, uh, 
left Mission Hope for Kids. We had a military move, of course. We were going to have about nine months down here in Austin, Texas. I finished my degree and uh, started the interview process knowing we were going to move to Tacoma, Washington. Mm. And immediately, the Boy Scouts of America picked up on, on me. They, they did some work with uh, my graduate school program and one of my certification programs. So they came shopping for nonprofit professionals out of there. Mm. And uh, because I had a tie to the Boy Scouts with two Eagle Scout brothers and a son at that time who was um, kind of marching toward Eagle Scout, um, they were like, yep you get it, come on in and come work for us. And, uh, mm. they, uh, I started work immediately like the first week or two that I got to, to come Washington. We didn't even have a house yet. And I started work for the Boy Scouts of America and it was my first like big girl grown up job mm. in marriage. Right. So Jay, again, he's now in a, in a major level command. He's got a brigade combat team. That's huge. Seven battalions under him, thousands of soldiers and families. And um, so he's kind of earned his spot and kind of at a, a peak, a pinnacle. And uh, and here I am <laughs> coming in, um, getting my start um, with and while I had a lot of experience, now I had the education to back it, and now I could really get like a big girl job right. and go do this. So, uh, yeah, I went to the Boy Scouts of America, and that ended up being really interesting. Such an interesting time to join. Yeah, I want to unpack that with you a little yeah. bit because, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I know that, uh, well, I'm guessing we might have a, a certain demographic of listeners. That's just my guess based right. on who I am. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but based uh, on you. Just, yeah, just just what I look like, what I sound like, probably that 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 limits that probably drives down the numbers real quick to a very few people. But I'd love to understand better. Uh, you know, around BSA, you said it's kind of an interesting time, right? Kind of a little bit of. Uh, maybe some controversy. There was right? a lot of controversy. Yeah, and th- th- there there is now again, but in a different light, completely different Correct. light. We're not talking about that controversy. Can you step into a little bit what you experienced at that time? Right. So um, I came in, and the Boy Scouts of America, um, their numbers have been dwindling a little bit, and they had they came to a decision that they were going to invite girls into the scouting program. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is interesting because really girls were in some of their programs. People aren't really aware of this, but uh, they had a program for 14 to 20-year-olds, the venturing program, and that was a co-ed program and always had been a co-ed program. Mm. And then the Sea Sea Scout program, um, which is really like scouting on water, um, also had been co-ed for quite some time. Mm. But the program that wasn't was the biggest program, you know, which was your – your kind of straight line Boy Scouts of America program, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts um, program. So <clears throat> they decide they're going to um, invite and include women in scouting. So our daughter had started the venturing program already. Um, our son at this point, you know, he was Eagle Scout. And um, as I started working for them, he made Eagle Scout and graduated and went off to college. And uh, our daughter was doing venturing because she always loved that outdoor camping stuff um our family is really big into that again I was raised that way I had two scouting brothers and so uh anyway they uh they say they're gonna um do this and my job was fundraising and marketing so I'm gonna have to be front and center in two ways one helping to market this program and second, to convince our donors that this this was a good choice and why and so 
um, obviously it was a program I loved, but I did more diving into the why they did it. And I don't think a lot of people did. And the media for sure wasn't particularly forthright about this. But uh, what we had learned is that 50% of the families were divorced. Um, and so kids were really coming with a single parent. Um, and so, and whether divorced or not, most parents were both working parents. And so families were exhausted. And um, we had dwindling numbers because families sort of knew of, I've got a son and a daughter. And if I get him to a scouting program, I need to get her to Girl Scouts or some kind of values-based program as well. Mm -hmm. It's how I grew up. Um, I didn't particularly do have like longevity in the Girl Scouts. Um, I did it for a little while. I kind of liked it, but I was more of like a rough and tumble girl. And uh, my parents, you know, said, hey, your brothers are getting to do scouting and you and your Mm -hmm. sister need a values-based program too. Um, My sister and I ended up in in a Masonic program at that time, um, something that with some family history in it. And uh, um, I'm grateful for the lessons I learned there. It was tied biblically and um, taught me a lot about confidence and public speaking. And so I'm grateful my parents nudged that. I said to my kids the same thing. You'll do an athletic program and you're going to do a values-based program. It can be scouting. It can be a church youth group. um, But it's going to be something Mm values-based. And um, so Nate, no problem, scouts. Amy... I'm not, she wasn't into the Girl Scout thing either. And, um, it was hard, you know, we're moving regularly. Church youth groups were, uh, you know, she didn't get that continuity. Mm. Um, so we did put her over in the venturing program. And then when scouting opened up, she was like, I'm in, I'm going to do it. And, uh, she was older. You have to make Eagle Scout by 18 years old. She was 16 when that opened. Mm. Um, and she jumped in and made a run, and she was in the first group of female Eagle Scouts. But it became easy for me. Um, so back to what I was saying, split programs. Having all these years, what I know as a sister is that I had four or five Pinewood Derby cars that I made <laughs> because I went with my brothers to all their Boy Scout events. Yeah. And Amy had Pinewood Derby cars she made because she was going with me because I was single parenting most of the time too. Hmm. I wasn't a single parent, but I was single parenting. Interesting. So off she came with me. So she was learning all the lessons and pretty much knew all the merit badge stuff and was doing everything alongside her brother as a little sister. Hmm. And the Boy Scouts of America were like, look at all the little sisters in the room who could benefit and think of the break we could do where these parents can do one activity under same same roof and hold them all together. So hmm. it was actually a very family first movement, but I don't know that a lot of people understood that or appreciated, um, what the scouting, the Boy Scouts of America were trying to do, which was hold families together in one spot. Yeah. Well, I could tell you from the headlines that that wasn't the case for the way that it was highlighted, right? No. I think most people could tell you that. And I think it's interesting though, too, cause you gave some, some color really to just the, also the activity that happens under Boy Scouts that doesn't happen under Girl Scouts, right? So mm-hmm. it really is also what, what are you naturally inclined to? To, to be interested to pursuing right how do you how do you create a better system for that so that that's a really nice i really appreciate that you highlighted that because i don't think we got in that color from you know piling a bunch of you know news articles together well and you know the other interesting thing is uh so we invited girls in but we didn't invite them into troops mm-hmm. and here's why 
Um, here's the other thing with a lot of thought the Boy Scouts did. They said, okay, so, you know, let's say you have troop one, two, three, all right, with the boys. We will start another troop on site, troop one, two, three girls. Hmm. So we have two separate troops. So we would do opening ceremony activities together and then immediately separate out Mm. to do all of the regular scouting activities with different leaders, right? Here's why. You know, one, that's better. People are less distracted. The boys aren't ogling the girls. The (laughs) girls aren't ogling the boys. But you want to know what else? Girls mature faster. And so if you want to see... Um, if if part of achieving Eagle Scout is getting to those leadership roles and getting elected to those leadership roles, women mature faster. So mm. we have it earlier. So what the Boy Scouts even knew is if we put these in joint troops, the girls are going to have every leadership position and the boys are just going to stand around. And that's not that wasn't going to serve the program either. Right. We're trying to create men of character women of character and we really do need to do that very very separately but the activities can be very very similar Hmm. so uh they were they were and still are completely separate wow moving on from your time at boy scouts of america correct you started transitioning into the travis manion foundation correct so i'd heard about it for some years some friends of mine worked there and um had drawn my attention to it, uh, and a position came open in the Pacific Northwest. I was living up there at the time. I had been doing fundraising for the Boy Scouts for a while and marketing, and I, I'd i done well at that, but I really missed the programmatic work, the work of being with people. Mm. And so the opportunity to continue the work in a very new region for the Travis Mangan Foundation um, was very appealing to me. But what was the most appealing um, – was their mission and the population, their constituents, really. So, you know, their mission is uh, to empower veterans and families of the fallen to develop character in future generations. And so if we just dissect that, veterans, gosh, my wheelhouse, obviously I've been born and raised um, around veterans my entire life. Families of the fallen had become a passion work for me um, through the war on terror and my and my work with uh, Families of the Fallen with regard to our own units, but then also the work I had done with TAPS. And then, of course, uh, youth work between Mission Hope for Kids and Boy Scouts of America. I felt like everything I had done was leading me to this, um, to this national organization. So large organization, it uh, is nationwide. Uh, we've got seven different regions and thousands and thousands of um, Spartans, we call them, our, our veterans and families of the fallen out doing stuff every single day across the country. And what that looks like for us is, um, pro- you know, about 300 community service projects every single year. Um, what we are most proud about is they're uh, most often veteran-led or um, led by one of our surviving family members. Uh, they're done in legacy of a lost hero. So if a veteran does it, they can do one for their battle buddy. If a uh, family member puts on a project, they can do it for their loved one. Um, we talk about the character strengths of, um, of the people that we're honoring 
And, uh, but the, the pride point for me is that at this point we have almost half of the population out volunteering with us is youth. Mm. And so we're having an impact on the next generation. And, um, the Travis Mangan foundation really, really believes that veterans, uh, are huge civic assets. These people raise their hand to support and defend the constitution. They go, they do a job, they do it well, and they return to communities all across the country. And when they do that, they still have so much more that they can give. And so, uh, we're trying to give them opportunities to do that, um, with community service, uh, and also, with our Character Does Matter program in, in front of youth audiences. And uh, that's our huge flagship program. And uh, that's uh, something that we just continue to grow year over year. Wow. And and so I've been fortunate enough to, to serve with a couple of local projects, right, around here with Travis Mannion. And, uh, you know, I've told you before, but my kids, you know, they, they adore those projects and uh almost surprising it, you know every every few months or even couple months they're like hey when are we gonna do our next next you know, event and i'm like Wait, really i mean that they are really enjoying being tied in with the community and know they're serving a, a greater purpose i think kids are sensitive to that too right right yeah. and and i think they um they sort of feel it when the adults around are engaged and mm-hmm. so getting our um our local veterans out doing that kind of the energy that they bring and and uh they seem to get a lot uh we don't we don't just guess that actually we're um we've had independent agencies come in and sort of measure the work that we do and that we understand that uh thriving scores go up that Mm. purpose and meaning and relationship is hugely important and uh, actually we always say meaning relationship and engagement and any of our military listeners will know MRE is the (laughs) meals ready to eat right out in the field. Um, Well, we know that that's important. And we know that they have that in community while they're serving. We know the family members have that in community while they're serving. And that they lose that almost immediately when they um, separate from service. And so, or family members lose that if they lose their connection, the loved one, if they're a family of the fallen. And so, first of all, there's an awesome synergy of bringing those two populations together. We're one of the only um, organizations out there that put veterans with families of the fallen. But um, but what we also know is that to regain that meaning, relationship, and engagement. So what you're talking about with your daughters is uh, something that they're experiencing as well that we know the veterans are experiencing because we see participation in programs like this bring their thriving scores up. And Mm. so I wouldn't be surprised that anybody associated with those also are getting a big boost from it. Wow. So what what do these um, community opportunities typically look like? I mean, I've I've, I've participated in a couple, but I'm sure that doesn't even you know meet the scratch of service right right so um they're happening all the time all across the country and we really encourage our um spartans across the country to really look and see what the needs are in their own community so what it feels like here in texas and in our little corner of the world is very very different than maybe the needs in detroit or chicago Mm. and so they look very very different based on what's happening in that community and we uh, lean into our veterans um, and our families of the fallen to kind of help guide us like what's the need how do we help do this and we we anchor them four times a year. Kind of, we want to make sure they're always happening. So we do work around the National Day of Service, which is Martin Luther King 
Junior Day in January. Around Memorial Day, we're named for fallen heroes, so that just makes sense. We do a lot of work um, in and around national cemeteries at that time. Back to school, because we love our work with youth, so helping prep those communities um, to be ready with with supplies, but also emotionally ready, you know, leaning into that character piece. And then, of course, Veterans Day, where we really think, like, a lot of people want to say, like, thank you for your service, you know, come get your free coffee. Uh, we sort of find that the best way to thank a veteran is to serve alongside them, go, about, go out and make their community better, because because that's what they want to do. So uh, we lean in there. So service here looks very different than what's happening anywhere else because we really have our communities getting the pulse on their own communities. Well, and I think you alluded to it a little bit, but I just want to peel back the, the layer a little bit more. You talk about honoring the fallen. How, how do we, you know, how, how does the Travis Manion Foundation and how do we as volunteers, obviously, if we want to be a part of that, how do how do they honor the fallen? How do they connect uh, those families to, to other folks in a meaningful way? Right. So for us, pulling them into community often happens when um, they hear about us or get referred to us maybe from other organizations uh, where they've started their grief journey. Um, we have a lot of them come in and want to join us for service expeditions. These are opportunities where we take them for four maybe seven days, you know, four to seven day time frame, depending on location. And uh, we really lean into our curriculum. We really work through grief together in community. We think, uh, you know, nobody should have to go through life alone. You should be able to do everything in community and you should be able to grieve in community too. Mm -hmm. And so, and we challenge the idea that grief just has to look like moping or um, being unhappy for the rest of your life. Grief can look like climbing gold star peak in alaska and leaving your loved one's dog tag at the top uh, yeah. it can look like building a cabin um it can look like doing repair work after storms in puerto rico or helping build out a retreat center for veterans in phoenix which is what we'll be doing next month so we pull in our families the fallen to do that with us there and then um, as they head back out to our regions across the country because a lot of times it's a nationwide audience that will pull together and kind of put together a really unique group um, could be fathers of the fallen mothers of the fallen sis, you know sisters brothers children um, adult children we keep our adult population together and our youth population very separate for their own unique service expedition that we do okay. um, but then as we send them back out to their own communities we plug them in with veterans and say you guys both want this ability to thrive back in your own local areas and we see a great synergy when they work alongside each other and uh, then we're able to pull in inspired civilians to to help that's great well speaking of inspired civilians how how do we get involved can anybody get involved absolutely so anybody can get involved uh, i would say go to travismangan.org join the mission first and foremost, and then click around our website. But uh, if you scroll to the bottom, there's a map and it's all of the activities that are going on currently. 
with our organization. Um, you know, this time of year, we do the 9-11 Heroes Run. In the spring, we do the Manion Wad. So if you like athletic events, these are for you. And then the community service opportunities um, that are happening are also located there. You can register and join us anywhere you want across the country. That's fantastic. So it's Travis Manion, M-A-N-I-O-N. Dot org. Correct. We're we're going to link that in the in the bio as well with uh, with these videos and uh, and podcasts. But um, also online, uh, there's some fantastic swag. So if you happen to be a swag junkie like myself, even if that's all the only reason you want to go is to go for the swag, mm-hmm. and then you happen to click into the mission and then get yourself enrolled pretty quickly. Right? We'll take you that way too. <laughs> we always hear great things about our swag. So if that's what gets you to us first, that's great. Then wear that nice, awesome shirt on out and help us with community work. That's right. I wear mine all the time. Exactly. Um, well, wonderful. Well, as we're winding down our, our time, I, I want to ask a couple of questions, uh, ones that I didn't necessarily run by you. But <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, no, nothing, nothing too crazy. Um, but something that impresses me is, is really hearing about your your legacy right and 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 kind of how you've built this um how you've built this track as somebody who has been the supporter mm-hmm. in so many circumstances mm-hmm. and then taking an active role in in choosing to be able to support more folks right and be, be taking more active stance in the community and in folks in in organizations around you with folks and that that's always kind of blown me away does that have anything to do with you know what when you talk about legacy when you think about mm-hmm. legacy what you want to leave behind or is mm-hmm. it something different from that um no it has everything to do with legacy i mean who who we are what we did you know i have a personal mission statement of leaving people and organizations better and um yes i had the ability to do that as j's plus one as mrs jason maselli and i'm I'm honored that I had that population to influence, but I always knew I had other places to influence as well. And so I'm, I'm thinking about that all the time. I'm thinking about where, who, who am I going to leave better? What place can I leave better? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about legacy all the time. I, uh, I, I should have said earlier, you know, one of the things, one of the driving forces, um, not just the placards that say Mrs. Jason Maselli, but it's it's ironic now. It's ironic that I do work with families of fallen. But uh, I remember going to visit even recently. I just did this recently, but early on going to visit um, my buried grandparents in a national cemetery. My grandfather was military. They chose to be buried in Fort Sam mm-hmm. Houston National Cemetery down in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And... Um, there's my grandfather on the front, Harold Chalfont, and uh, the backside of the grave is Monita. And uh, I remember walking through the cemetery and realizing that's that's who spouses are, right? Um, early on, wow, you 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 rate the backside of this man's grave marker, all of him, his, sometimes there's awards on there and heroic stuff. And in the back, his beloved wife, you know, Charlene is kind of like that, almost like a tagline, just like, you know, a subheading, not even your own real heading. And, uh, I remember, um, thinking, yeah, there's, there's going to be more to my story. I'm not just going to be the backside of Jay Maselli's grave and wanting my daughter 
to see that and wanting other young military spouses to see that. And so um, if I helped change the course of that for military spouses, if I helped change the course of that for women that I work with, um, uh, the female scouts that I worked with as Amy's scout leader, um, you know, having them understand that they bring so much to the table, then, then I did my job right. But, hmm. but where I know I did my job right is my daughter, who in um, graduated high school in 2021 and, and went into the military, hmm. not as a plus one, hmm. but to create her own story and her own legacy. And then my only niece um, on my family's side, there's only two granddaughters um, and, a, and a whole grouping of boys following her. And they're doing West Point side to side, side by side together, these two girls who grew up with this legacy where in theory they should be the perfect military wife, right? Like we've, we, this is the family business and this is what you do. And having strong enough female role models from our generation between me and my sister-in-law, my sister, um, strong enough role models to say, yeah, I, I can do more. I can, I can do this too. And, uh, and there they are doing it. And so that's when I know something we did something right right yeah yeah absolutely and um you know having two daughters myself right <laughs> i mean I'm, I'm in a house full of full of females right? yeah you are <laughs> and uh I, there is a there's a level of strength there that sometimes i have a tough time rec- reckoning with right but right. Um, i have to ask my same the same question as a husband how am i enabling and empowering them to have a voice mm-hmm Right? How am I? How am I also leading by example and, and mm-hmm. reminding them that absolutely you can do anything. Right. And if anybody tells you anything otherwise, you got to come talk to me. Right. <laughs> right. And, and and what that looks like in partnership and what you know. And I think there were a lot of iterations along the way, um, a lot of course correction and changes along our story. Um, that I'm so glad our kids got to see, you know, where they, they saw me step out from behind Jay and step into who I am. And, uh, and I'll say that it, uh, it strongly influences my son as well. You know, I think, um, he'll be eventually looking for that in his partner too. Well, I, I do want to put a nice bow on this because I don't have a lot to add to this. You have told a, a, a story that, um, that I can't wait to actually listen to over and over and over again. It's, oh. And I, w- I want my kids to be able to hear, uh, you know, kind of here's, here are the things that you can become, here are the things that you can do. Yeah. And so I really appreciate your, your vulnerability and your, your uh, taking the chance to share this, you know, with, with myself, with our listeners. And, um, again, just so glad to get to have you as a friend outside of this. So I know yeah. I love that too. I, I really enjoy you and your family as well. Thank you. Really. Uh, th- thanks for joining. And, uh, and for today, that's going to be all. This is Accessor. <laughs>